0: just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply
1: like I said I come I come off the heels of some of very strong black well-intentioned women who have stood up for themselves and therefore have
0: stood up for me
2: Welcome to the Black Business of Broadway, a podcast brought to you by the Broadway League and Black to Broadway. Here, we highlight the stories, how-tos, and successes of the Black professionals and legends of Broadway. I'm your host, Janine Scott. Today's guest is Candice Jones, a playwright, poet, and educator. She has also been a fellow at Brown University and in London, and a Vana playwright alum and Cal Arts Critical Studies MFA recipient. Her primary goal is to write love letters for and to women of the American South. She is the author of two full-length plays, Crack Baby and Flex. Flex is currently running at the Lincoln Center Theater. Welcome, Candress. Thank you. We are excited to have you. I had an opportunity to uh, go to the Lincoln Center to watch this wonderful play, and it sparked so many conversations. I brought my stepdaughter with me, who is also a basketball player. Wow. And, uh, it, it, it it Lots of conversations. I'll just say that. Uh, sure. So you're from Arkansas. What was that like growing up in Arkansas, and what led you to to where you're at right now, where you're like, I am going to write work specifically for women of the American South. What about that upbringing led you to land there?
1: Wow. So, um, like you said, I'm from Arkansas, born and raised. And pretty much, to sum it all up, that is the life that I, I really, really know. Like the old saying, write what you know. And it's not that I just want to stick to that, but it's more than anything that these are the people um, that inspire my writing. They are the wellspring of inspiration, you know, that be my creativity. And I think as far back as I can remember, I have just enjoyed listening to stories from people who were from my hometown around my hometown Dermot, Arkansas and the livelihood of people there always intrigued me so when i really started thinking about like what about what i wanted to focus on in my writing i um i just kept looking back to home i know the specific moment when i when i decided okay i am going to write love letters to women of, of the american south and um I was on Facebook, <laughs> <laughs> and um, this poet, um, she, I, I, I would say she wrote a writing prompt, I would call it a writing prompt, mm-hmm. or she she asked a question, a general question. Um, her question was, where are the stories about people from the South, the American South, mm-hmm. Black people in particular, who stayed? And never left. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, those are me and my people, (laughs) you know, Mm. because, you know, like I said, even though I've spent some time outside of Arkansas, Arkansas, you know, out of my um, 42 years of living, um, 38 of them have been, you know, in the state of Arkansas. So I, I just felt seen. I felt heard. And I felt a call to action. Um, Because she specifically questioned or stated there are so many stories about people who um, left and went somewhere else. There are so many stories about people who, you know, went somewhere outside the South and then Mm -hmm. came back. Mm -hmm. But where are the people, uh, stories of the the people who just stayed? And And all I could think of was my immediate family. So that, that is where that comes from. That's awesome. Because,
2: so I'm originally from Nebraska and I think about that same thing. We just had like our native day. So we all, people came back, people who left, who came back. And then there are people who, who've been there their entire life. And, um, and I shared with you that one of my, one of my other passions is, is women in sports and it's because. Like, to, basically, to what your play said, a lot of times for Black folks in general, sports seems to be the ticket out, you know, or the gateway uh, yeah. for people to get out of situations. Uh, it's the thing that even though we know the stats may not necessarily be in our favor as far as making it professionally, it is the gateway for many of us to get into into college, and um, to create generational wealth, you know, a higher education, because most of our parents are like, look, you know, we didn't have the discretionary income to put away for a college fund. Right. Right. Uh, so you're going to have to get a scholarship, whether it be academic or athletic. You got to get some sort of scholarship. Yeah. In your play, you tell the story of high school girls basketball team called the Lady Train, uh, which takes place in your home of Arkansas, rural Arkansas. And basketball serves as um, a sanctuary for these young women to escape the pressures of growing up um, in a small town. And did basketball, was basketball also your escape, or is that just something that um, you just saw going around you?
1: Well, I I feel like I was very much so raised in what I call a a basketball ecosystem. So Mm -hmm. I could definitely say that, you know, the conversation around basketball being a ticket out was definitely part, a huge part of the conversation of progression out of my hometown. And I will say that since um, I graduated from high school in 1999, I think the population, which was only about, 4,000 then has shrunk into about 2,000 or less. Yeah. And so, um, but basketball, sports, um, football is for boys, basketball for boys and girls track, whatever was Mm -hmm. seen, was definitely seen as an outlet. I don't think that, um, the conversation was, um, athletics over academics, like, You know, it's touted, you know, by some, mm-hmm. but it was definitely a question of finding exactly where your talent or skill was and then getting out using that talent or skill. I was one of those kids who saw, oh, either basketball or academics, you know, mm-hmm. but I know for a few of the women on my team that it was it was seen as the golden ticket.
2: Right now thinking about going back to the play flex, looking at the different stories that the women were facing and the and and religion and um, making a pregnancy pack or abstinence pack rather, not a pregnancy pack, but making an abstinence pack so that um, everyone would, would graduate and they could make it to make it to the finals or to the championship. But the bigger thing was making it so that you could be seen um, in such a large arena so that you could be scouted and picked up and you'd be able to, you know, go to college and matriculate and, you know, be able to do something do something uh, more grand, I guess you'd say. Were these stories based on people and things that you, see, you saw growing up or were, were these things that you just um, took creative license with um, mentally?
1: I will say that, you know, now that I have written in the play, and it is what it is, Mm -hmm. I I think I tried to stray away from it, but each of the characters does remind me of someone. Mm -hmm. Um, Each of the characters does remind me of someone or remind me of a thing that happened. I started writing the play in 2016 Mm -hmm. and started really thinking about, okay, what were some of the things that my teammates and I had to push back against? And so I do feel like many of the narratives simply come from the obstacles that we as a team faced. For example, you say we wanted to be seen. And we we really did. We really yeah. did. It, it wasn't so much as for, for us. It wasn't so much that we wanted to be seen so that we could, um, you know, Get scouted we we knew that would happen But we just wanted people to know that we Existed (laughs) you know Outside of southeast Arkansas That we existed and we were Like capable of Making it to the State arena um we, we we wanted those bragging rights. We wanted people in our hometown to know that we could stick together for a whole season and make it to the state tournament and be successful. You know, it was you know we we wanted to be seen in a we wanted to be seen not only by individuals outside of our, our hometown. We wanted those people in our hometown who kind of challenged whether or not um, our team could go to the state tournament without anyone getting pregnant, (laughs) without, you know, Mm -hmm. falling into the traps that a lot of young, young women in Southeast Arkansas, you know, fall into. We really wanted to prove that we could make it happen. And so, you know, the pact, no drinking, no smoking, no sex. (laughs) I do recall us saying as a team this is what we're, this is our goal this year. This is how we're going to stick together. And you can see the larger themes of the play manifesting through those promises that we made as young girls to each other.
2: It, it does cover those themes of poverty, sexuality, freedom of choice. And it's very timely with what's going on right now um, yeah. when we talk about poverty, sexuality, freedom of choice that that is very present right now so and and it's 2023 and you went through this in you know 1999 i went through this in 1994 and i would venture to guess that you know our parents and our parents parents went through this as well Th- this is a tell as old as time unfortunately yes. especially when it comes to our community um and how sometimes um you you even talk about christianity and yeah. and how sometimes uh being from the South, my, my family being from the South, being very much Texans, uh how sometimes Christianity will will prevent us from knowing
1: it, it's simply like interpretations of Christian Christianity Christianity, I feel like, you know, puts a halt on how certain house information is yes. given. Yes, that's what I'm trying yeah. to say. In um, and, and those conversations, I can remember um, there was one mom <laughs> on, on who, you know, who one person. Well, she had two daughters on the team who were my age and she was very just verbal. <laughs> she was very like, listen, if you can't talk, she wouldn't necessarily say if you can't talk to your mom, talk to me. She, she would literally talk to the other moms <laughs> or talk to us in front of our parents about things that I know that like quite honestly um my parents may not have been willing to approach in such a brass you know in in mm-hmm. such an abrasive manner but you know she she was the she was the young mother who had been through some things and she simply wanted to see not only her children children you know not repeat the same pitfalls that she had she felt she had made she wanted to be clear that she didn't want anyone you know to um you know fall into those same traps that she had fallen into so she she gave us real talk but the thing the thing about it was you know it was you know Individuals getting to know their themselves, individuals being introduced to ideas of having sex and sexuality, it was met with such abrasiveness. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was no in between. Either you do or you don't. And right. it's either it's wrong or it's right. There was no understanding of you are 15, 16 years old. And most of your teammates have been pregnant, (laughs) or you know, and and, and had, like, the reality was that um, if there was 15 of us, 12 of us had given birth, you know, that was the reality of our situation. So, you know, for them to, for the idea of abstinence to be constantly taught. To young women who were actively procreating, yes. <laughs> like not just right. actively having, you know, actively having sex and actively pro- procreating, giving giving birth and you know becoming mothers, and and you know, it the conversation was so, you know, nowhere near what it needed to be, right? And I, I just couldn't understand. I really couldn't understand why it was that way, because obviously it wasn't working obviously it wasn't working not not for not for people in my hometown anyway but uh, again that is you know what what i'll say is the interpretation of christianity Mm -hmm. um and also just the just the denial of even even though these young women may identify as christians because many of them of them did and still do, and they love God, well, some of them might also love another female in a romantic way. Exactly. You know? And that's okay. And and that's (laughs) okay. And what I I found, especially with my former teammates who eventually came out, was that, you know, these are some of the most, you know, God-fearing religious women I know. Mm-hmm. So somehow, at a very young age, they were able to circumvent the idea that God does not love them, or you know, be, be, God does not love them because they are homosexuals. Right. Which is why, to me, um, the character Donna is so important. Yes. You know, we we have you know Sharice who does struggle with her relationship. Mm-hmm. hers and Donna's relationship and her, her Christian values. But I think Donna is very much in a place, you know, that she could say, I love God and I love Charisse too, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so it, it was important for me to show that in the, in the narrative that, you know, Christianity is not necessarily, necessarily the villain it's how individuals interpret it. Yes. And, and so, yeah, it's and and again, that is something that we're still dealing dealing with today.
2: Especially in our community. Especially in our community. Yeah. yeah. More I would say more so in our community than than anywhere else, unfortunately. But I I, I love that. Like I said, and I think this was before we were record we were recording, there are so many layers. It was just like, oh my gosh. And it just and and the backstories of of these young ladies and the coach included and I love the aspect of the mental health that got explored I was just like oh my gosh she's covered all this in this finite period of time and I mean I I encourage anybody regardless of your race or ethnicity to you know to go out and and to see this play because especially with a young person, because it is, it's a, it's a conversation starter. If, if nothing else, it is a conversation starter into what our, what our young people are facing, you know, on a day to day. So in flex, you, you know, we talked about, you know, you explore the differences of, you know, that women face in in the sports industry and in question, you know, that are often asked of women, uh, but not of men. You know why is it important that we tell these types of
1: stories? I mean it's it's so important that we tell these types of stories, um, mainly so we can and 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 it's really simple. So so number one, so we can be informed. Mm-hmm. There are parts of um, human geography especially in the Southern parts of the United States that people are not necessarily aware of Mm -hmm. and the interactions between people there in, in those, you know, in those communities are a bit different than interactions in, you know, the mainly white spaces. A lot of my impulse to tell stories about individuals you know from my own from my hometown as well as you know me and you know everyone that you know I grew up around and and raised me is I I don't feel like there's necessarily misinformation I just feel like that the visibility is not there you know the the push again like when i was a high, when i was a young girl playing high school basketball we just wanted other other people to know that we existed um mm. it's it's still that impulse the 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 idea of our town actually being on the map but as as far as basketball is concerned and gender equality you know and i don't think anyone doubts this that the love and the passion that Women who play sports, it exists, it's there, and it is um, there as strongly with women as it is, you know, with men. It's it's about instilling, you know, that mm-hmm. perspective in children that, you know, these qualities are not just attached to masculinity okay. or femininity. You know, mm-hmm. these qualities are attached to whoever had the ball in their hand the longest, mm-hmm. quite mm-hmm. to be quite honest. you know, and so and, and, and that that th- those types of perspectives can instill a certain amount of pride, a certain type of pride in in children. And hopefully, you know, those children will then grow up. To say, you know, if, if they do happen to have, be in a position where they are wondering about, you know, can a, does it take, you know, a certain type of person to do a certain job? Maybe that, you know, life experience that they had coming up will tell them, okay, my mom played basketball, therefore it's not necessarily just attached to masculinity.
2: So you've taken all these experiences that you've had growing up um, and playing basketball, and the interactions that you've had, and you created this work. How did you get it to Lincoln Center?
1: Um, a lot of workshops and a lot of people who like supported the play. I've had the opportunity to workshop this play with Black women. Period. Mm. Um, I am lucky enough to have come into theater, into playwriting um, at an older age, but I'm coming on the heels of Black women who have been very vocal Mm -hmm. and very strong in how the workshop process needs to be a safe space for Black women. I don't think that that scene where mental health is brought up in the play, Mm -hmm. I don't think that scene would have happened if there had been anything other than black women in the room. Wow. Because somebody would have pushed back against it. But luckily I was at ground floor, which is, which is, um, headed by Madeline Odom, but Madeline, you know, her thing was, this is a, Clearly a black play, which Mm -hmm. when I started writing the play, I decided this was going to be a black play about black women that had no, um, that in no way was being leery of the white gaze. Right. Right. You know, and luckily when others read the play who, um, accepted into their workshops, they, they felt that impulse. Because it's not like I told them only only a black director and only a black dramaturg. I, I did say only black actors. Right. You know. Right. Um, but you know, luckily I, I had the benefit of people who understood that, you know. Mm-hmm. So when it was workshopped at, you know, at ground floor at the Berkeley rep, Margot Hall was the director and Kim Yule was there as my dramaturg. And, you know both of those women have been, have had, you know, a whole his, whole history in theater right. and they are both very strong voices. And so, like I said, in, in the scene that does take place at a public counsel, counseling office, when I wrote that in that workshop, nobody questioned it. Mm. You know, nobody questioned why doesn't this take place in a, in a, at an an abortion clinic, mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm,
1: because mm-hmm. everyone at that room, in that room, I felt like did not see the character of April as a statement; they saw right. her as a human, yes, yes, who needed help, right? You know, um, and then Bay Area playwrights, um, again, a room full of Black women, you know, mm. and so. And, and then at Lincoln Center, and, and the script, um, the script went from Vona to Ground Floor to Bay Area Playwrights. It got accepted to Humana in the year of 2020. Everything shut down. But again, mm-hmm. that was a room full of Black women. And then after that. Um, After the pandemic happened and everything went to a halt and the play did not get world premiered, um, it has gotten two productions, um, two regional theater productions, one here in, in Arkansas theater square, which is a beautiful theater with a, with, you know, Mm -hmm. it was a beautiful experience. Right. And then it was done in Atlanta at theatrical outfit and, Somehow, the script got into the hands of Jenna Clark Embry at Lincoln Center. Mm. And I'm pretty sure it was through my agent. (laughs) 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 Um, But um, it's, um, yeah, she read it and advocated for it. Mm. But again, um, it was a room full of Black women. Um, Kim Yule, my dramaturg for the play, she, she was present, um, Liliana Blaine Cruz, of mm-hmm. course, directed, um, Black cast, you know, and it, it was this, this play to me, these characters have been so well taken care of by Black women who care about these characters, who see themselves in these characters and, you know, want their journeys to be, you know, full and you know, won't see themselves in the play, and therefore want the play want the play to be seen. Right. So yeah,
2: yeah. And you know what? How rare is it that you have so many Black women touching work that's coming on this type of stage? So yeah. kudos to you, and kudos to you for
1: sticking to what you know to be true. Like I said, I come I come off the heels of some of very strong, black, well-intentioned women who have stood up for themselves and therefore have stood up for me. That's awesome.
2: And so you're working on you have another project coming up, right?
1: Oh, a Medusa thread. <laughs> <laughs> that that's one um play that I that I've written um. That I, I hope gets gets produced. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's a play that takes place in a purgatorial beauty shop run by the Gorgon Medusa, oh. <laughs> and um, it's it's about transitioning. It's a it's it's about like individuals who are transitioning, who have dealt with um, sexual trauma, transitioning mm-hmm. from purgatory into whatever afterlife they choose. Mm. And um, the reason why I chose to place the play in a Black beauty shop is quite simply because that is, in my personal experience, a Black beauty shop was the first place that I felt a real sense of agency Mm -hmm. about myself. Um, I felt a real sense of, you know... This is, you know, how I want to be treated. And if I don't like how I'm being treated, then I can voice my opinion on that. Um, I understand that it's not everyone's experience, sadly, when they go into beauty shops. But I wanted to create an environment in which someone who had experienced for individuals who had, you know, past life experiences and were still dealing with them even as they transitioned over into afterlife. Mm-hmm. I wanted, you know, to create an environment in which the beauticians, the the hairstylists, the people who touch their heads mm-hmm. were only concerned with their care. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's the type of beauty shop that exists <laughs> in a Medusa thread. I love it. A project that I do have ongoing that I'm actually I'm going to Minneapolis next week and I'm workshopping it is um Love Them First, which is a musical.
2: Okay.
1: Based on a um principal Ella et- in elementary school in Minneapolis, her name is Maury Freesleben, and she was she's no longer there, but she was the principal of Lucy Craft Lainey Elementary in North Minneapolis. There was a documentary um, done based on the the principal and the school, and she's the the principal. She's just a very inspirational character, but um, the documentaries documentarians they not only go into the school and focus on her. They focus on the kids and the teachers. And it's just, you know, if you were to watch the documentary, which is on YouTube, it's very heartwarming and heartbreaking Mm -hmm. as well. You know, but it's not one of those, um, it's not poverty porn. Right. They, they, they all have stories of strength and resilience, um, they're going through the phases of standardized testing, which is something that mostly everyone can relate to. Mm-hmm. And so um the challenge is, how do um, I and the composer Randy Preston, how do we capture all this and put it into the form of a musical?
2: I think you're on the cutting edge yet again. So so that's it's awesome, and we will definitely. Uh, look for that work. One, it has been amazing uh, talking to you and hearing your story and hearing your journey uh, to, to where you are now. So one thing that we always ask our guests, it's, uh, it's a piece of advice to, to future leaders. So what one piece of advice would you like to share with the future Black leaders of Broadway? So the future you.
1: Oh, wow. That's that's a hard one. But <laughs> I, I guess one thing that I would love to do is what others have done for me is just to help clear the road. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, several times in this interview, I bought, bought up the fact that there are Black women who have come bef- before me mm-hmm. who you know, have done the work that has enabled me to feel safe doing my work. Right. And I know when I'm in an environment that's not safe um as an artist. Mm-hmm. So for me to have experience, I would say 90% of my career so far has been in safe spaces. Right. You know that's amazing, that is. but it's because other women have come before me and paved the way, and and said that our stories need to be told. Mm-hmm. So that that's more than more than anything, you know. I challenge myself and, you know, other future leaders to, to simply help help to pave the way. Always re- revere their ancestors, mm-hmm. but but also, you know, know that they have done things to pave the way and, and, try to, and try to do the same.
2: I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much. I want to thank our guests and you, our listeners. You could have been doing anything else, but you chose to spend your time with me and I am grateful. Be sure to subscribe at bpn.fm slash BBB so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, tell a friend. I'm your host, Janine Scott, and we at the Broadway League hope you enjoyed this episode of The Black Business of Broadway.